Hello everyone and welcome to the October 1st edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeals says that the WCAB has exclusive jurisdiction over 132A claims. Here's what happened in the case of Michelle Dutra versus Mercy Medical Center of Mount Shasta. Michelle Dutra sued her former employer, Mercy Medical Center, for defamation and wrongful termination in violation of public policy. She alleged that Mercy committed libel per se by communicating its grounds for terminating her employment to her and others in a private meeting. She also alleged that Mercy discharged her in violation of the public policy codified at Labor Code Section 132A, which generally prohibits discharging an employee for filing a workers' compensation claim. Mercy informed her of the grounds for her termination in a confidential meeting attended by the plaintiff, a union steward, and Mercy supervisors. Mercy terminated her for continuing to gossip while on duty and after being counseled about it, for altering a check that had been issued to her from a discretionary fund provided by a religious order affiliated with the hospital, an action the letter referred to as check fraud, and for falsifying her time card and abandoning her post by leaving work without clocking out. The trial court granted Mercy's motion for summary judgment against the defamation cause of action. It concluded that Mercy's communicating its grounds for terminating her was a conditionally privileged communication under Civil Code Section 47. The trial court also granted Mercy's motion to dismiss the remaining wrongful termination cause of action on the ground that the WCAB has exclusive jurisdiction to adjudicate claims under Labor Code Section 132A. The Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal in the partially published case of Michelle Dutra v. Mercy Medical Center, Mount Shasta. The 132A statute vests the WCAB with full power, authority, and jurisdiction to try and determine finally all matters specified in the 132A section subject only to judicial review, except that the Appeals Board shall have no jurisdiction to try and determine a misdemeanor charge. And now, our fraud report. A 65-year-old Stephen Morales was convicted of workers' compensation fraud, tax fraud, and perjury. His crimes cost the state and others more than $3 million. Morales was accused of setting up business fronts in Riverside County to hide payroll and keep from paying workers' comp premiums. Morales and his son, 44-year-old Brian Morales of Wildemar, colluded to cheat more than 400 employees out of insurance premiums for unemployment insurance and failed to report workers' injuries. They underreported the number of employees or reported no employees at all under the various front companies. Brian Morales pleaded guilty in the case in January 2010 and was sentenced in the following April to four years in state prison. He was also ordered to pay $3.1 million in restitution. Stephen Morales could be sentenced on October 15th to 17 years, four months in prison and also be ordered to repay the $3.1 million in losses. 
48-year-old Gonzalo Flores Ruiz, who practiced medicine at the Central Valley Occupational Medical Group in Bakersfield, pled guilty to distributing a controlled substance. Ruiz was charged with prescribing and distributing the painkiller hydrocodone for no legitimate medical purpose and outside the usual course of professional practice. Hydrocodone is an addictive prescription narcotic sold generically or under brand names such as Vicodin, Vicoprofen, Lortab, Lorset, and Norco. Ruiz is scheduled for sentencing on December 3rd and faces a maximum prison sentence of 10 years. This case is the product of a joint investigation by the FBI, the DEA, the California Department of Healthcare Services Investigations, and the Medical Board of California. And in regulatory news, the California WCIRB amended its 2013 rate filing to recommend no rate increase for next year in light of recently passed workers' comp reforms. The WCIRB's governing committee voted 6-5 to five in favor of amending the Bureau's rate filing. The Bureau previously had requested a 12.6% average pure premium rate increase that would have been effective this January 1st. WCIRB's Governing Committee chose to wait and see whether SB 863 will reduce costs for California's comp system next year. The Bureau could still recommend a mid-year average pure premium rate increase for July 2013 based on whether SB 863 produces sufficient savings. The bill, which takes effect January 1st, is expected to boost permanent disability benefits for injured workers while implementing several measures to help lower comp costs for insurers and employers. The Rating Bureau's most recent estimate projects that SB 863 will reduce California comp costs by $300 million annually. However, the Bureau has said it is not yet able to predict the impact of some of the measures of the reform bill. Industry experts are unsure what Senate Bill 863 will do, how it will do it, and how well it will be done. Drawing on an American football reference, one industry expert said the new law is merely at halftime. DIR Director Christine Baker even acknowledges there's a great deal of work yet to be done. Baker led a team who, at the direction of Governor Brown, worked with the two parties in secret since October to create a workers' compensation reformed package. Baker admits that regulations are needed to actually help the parties implement the bill. Those regulations will require public input and buy-in from workers' comp stakeholders in fairly short amount of time. Workshops and open forum discussions have already been scheduled. Despite strong bipartisan support for the bill following a personal plea from Governor Brown, not everyone is on board with the new law. Attorneys for injured workers have been dead set against it from the time it was a proposal. Baker said she has been working with the California Applicants Attorneys Association to work through their issues. Governor Brown signed AB 2219 that eliminates the January 1, 2013 sunset date on a pilot project that required roofing contractors to maintain workers' compensation insurance whether or not they had any employees. The law also requires their workers' comp insurers to conduct annual payroll audits on these particular licensees.
Existing law requires every licensed contractor or applicant for licensure to have on file at all times with the Contractor State License Board a current and valid Certificate of Workers' Compensation Insurance or Certification of Self-Insurance or a statement certifying that there are no employees. Existing law that would have expired this January requires a contractor with a C-39 roofing classification to obtain and maintain workers' compensation insurance even if he or she has no employees. AB 2219 extends the operation of these provisions indefinitely. A significant portion of the 4,800 active licensed roofing contractors are insured by the State Compensation Insurance Fund. Requiring SCIF auditors to conduct annual in-person audits on all of these contractors would likely cost in excess of a half million dollars a year. To recover these costs, the bill provides the insurers, including the state fund, with the authority to charge fees to recoup their auditing costs. The pilot program, AB 881, was created back in 2006 in response to a high amount of workers' compensation fraud by roofing contractors. The results of the pilot project over the last five years have been promising. The data shows a significant increase in the percentage of roofing contractors who are carrying workers' comp coverage. And in medical news, a new book published by a cancer surgeon discloses the dark side of medicine. When Dr. Marty McCary was a medical student, staffers at the Boston Hospital where he was training had a nickname for one of its most popular surgeons, Dr. Hodad. Hodad is an acronym for Hands of Death and Destruction. Despite his Ivy League credentials and board certification, this surgeon, Dr. Hodad, had an unfortunate tendency to botch operations so badly that patients often suffered life-threatening complications. But he was also one of the surgeons most requested by patients, including celebrities, thanks to his charming bedside manner. 42-year-old Dr. Marty McCary aims to end the professional code of silence that allows colleagues like Dr. Hodad to thrive. Now a cancer surgeon at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Dr. McCary has just published the book, Unaccountable, What Hospitals Won't Tell You and How Transparency Can Revolutionize Healthcare. The book outlines the extent to which doctors and hospitals suppress objective data about how patients fare in their hands. And he argues for clear, publicly accessible statistics to help people make the best choices when it comes to medical treatment. He argues that hospitals and physicians should collect outcomes data on everything. Without that, McCary says that patients are walking in blind every time they choose a hospital. McCary also claims that there is terrible guilt in the industry about keeping quiet, but there are strong social forces against speaking up when something doesn't look right. Speaking up can even get you fired. Some young doctors quickly realize that they have walked into an industry with a very dark side. New York, Oregon, and California require hospitals to report death rates from heart bypass surgery, adjusted for how sick patients were and other factors to make the comparison fair. After New York made its data public in 1989, hospitals scrambled to improve and death rates from heart surgery fell 41% in four years.
The International Association of Industrial Accident Boards and Commissions Committee posted a draft model rule for amending state workers' compensation laws that addresses opioid pain medication prescribing. The document suggests, among other measures, that when patients receive daily opioid doses with a morphine equivalent exceeding 120 milligrams and they are not experiencing meaningful improvement in pain and function, a workers' compensation payer may require that the prescribing doctor provide a plan for managing and tapering the claimants off of the medications as a condition of future payment. The committee also says that physician groups have opposed regulations such as this one in the model rule out of concern that they could harm patients by discouraging physicians from treating pain with opioids. The document also suggests that when physicians engage in long-term opioid treatment for chronic non-malignant pain, the treatment should be administered under an opioid management plan. The plan should include a treatment agreement signed by the patient and the prescribing physician. It must describe the limitations of opioids in controlling pain, possible side effects of long-term use, risks of opioid dependency, and activities for relieving injury symptoms. It also calls for urine drug testing and specific information to be reported to claims payors. And in financial news, a new report says that prescription opioids are a major reason for the skyrocketing costs of workers' compensation insurance. Keith Rosenblum, senior risk consultant for Lockton Companies, says that prescription opioids are presently the number one workers' compensation problem in terms of controlling the ultimate costs of indemnity losses. The report estimates 55 to 86 percent of all claimants receive opioids for chronic pain. Rosenblum says this is a relatively new phenomena in the 100-year history of workers' compensation. Overdose deaths have increased 300 percent since 1999, and misuse and abuse of the prescription painkillers was responsible for almost a half million emergency room visits in 2009, double what they were five years ago. Opioids account for an average 25% of the prescription spending and 35% or greater for claims over three years old. There are indirect costs as well, such as workers not returning to work if they are on the medication more than 90 days, as they become either addicted to or tolerant of the drugs. These workers also suffer a multitude of associated illnesses and debilitating side effects secondary to drug use. These losses become exceptionally expensive and very difficult to deal with, and the reduction in pain is also difficult to resolve, according to the author of this study. The Obama administration said there are troubling indications that some hospitals may be using electronic records to defraud Medicare. And federal authorities promised to prosecute any doctors and hospitals found gaming the system. U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius and Attorney General Eric Holder warned five hospital-related interest groups of signs of abuse of the Medicare health care program. 
The Sebelius Holder letter surfaced two days after the New York Times reported that hospitals and doctors may be using electronic records to contribute to a rise in Medicare billing, much of it in hospital emergency rooms. The Times said hospitals received $1 billion more in Medicare reimbursements in 2010 compared to 2005, partly by changing the billing codes assigned to emergency room patients. Sebelius and Holder said they were specifically concerned about reports that some providers may be using electronic records to inflate payments or to exaggerate the intensity of treatments in order to reap profits. The American Hospital Association, which represents 5,000 hospitals and health systems, responded by calling on CMS for greater guidance on how to navigate complex rules and complained that duplicative government audits were diverting resources from patient care. The Sebelius Holder letter was also addressed to the American Federation of Hospitals, the Association of Academic Health Centers, the Association of American Medical Colleges, and the National Association of Public Hospitals and Health Systems. And with that, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or iPod by searching for the WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Folds with Floyd's Karen Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.